seated. It's our custom at First Scots to work our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. And for the last few months, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. Today, we're going to look again at a passage that we began two weeks ago, Hebrews 2, uh, verses 10 to 18. But we're going to focus, we're going to zoom in a little bit and focus especially on verses 12 and 13. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1002. And it's in these two verses that the author wants us to think about something that maybe has never crossed our minds before. And that is, what is Jesus doing when we worship? What is Jesus doing when we worship? Now, before I read God's word, let's seek his blessing. Father in heaven, uh, your word is wider and deeper than anything our minds can comprehend. And yet you have given us the mind of Christ and you've given us the Holy Spirit who illumines the word to us. And so we need your help. If, if, if you don't help us now, Lord, if you don't preach the word into our souls, then we have no hope of understanding, no hope of retaining or no hope of uh, applying these truths. So help us, we pray. And Father, more than anything, we pray that you would awe us this morning with the wonder of Christ, even as we see that it is he who joins us in worship, that this is not mere uh, motions that we go through, but this is communion with Jesus Christ. And so teach us that and help us to be in awe of him this morning, we pray in God's name. Amen. Listen now to the reading of God's Word, Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. The, de the devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning it. 
Those words were spoken by Charles Haddon Spurgeon at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London over 150 years ago. They could have been spoken yesterday, couldn't they? There's nothing new under the sun. Sadly, so few churches have listened to Charles Spurgeon. And, and especially in the second half of the 20th century, church leadership in America created an entire industry devoted to the science of entertaining people into the church. And the model became known as the attractional or the seeker-sensitive model of church. And what that model taught us was to view the church's worship as a product to be marketed to consumers rather than an act of worship to be offered to a holy God. And rather than measuring growth in terms of spiritual maturity and faithfulness, we began to measure growth in terms of numbers. The cardinal sin for churches today is boredom. And so rather than deep, serious study of the Scriptures, pastors spend more time studying demographic reports and top ten music lists to see what their people want. And so rather than going into the world and transforming it by the gospel, the church for the last 50 years in America has been using all its energy trying to keep up with the world. And and certainly that approach will increase numbers for a time. But something terrible happens when we do that. When, When we make ourselves the center of our worship, when we make our preferences the center of our worship, and we target certain consumers with worship, it ceases to be worship at all. When we make worship all about what people want, trying to create an experience where we turn the sanctuary of God into a concert hall, the sermon into a short TED Talk, and we minimize prayer in worship so that we don't bore people with their short attention spans, we may gain people, but we will lose the presence of God in worship. And ironically, what happens is when we do those things, when we target consumers in worship and we make it our chief goal not to bore them so more and more people will come in, but we lose the presence of God. Do you know what happens to worship? Over a while, it becomes boring and we have to do something new. And what we win people with, we have to do better and do more of to keep them coming back. Do you realize that in the scriptures, when people encounter the living God, there are many responses, but boredom is never one of them. The Bible's antidote to boredom isn't entertainment. It is that soul-satisfying awe of being in the presence of Jesus Christ. But what happens is if we don't have that sense of God's presence or if we don't know the Lord Jesus, then we'll inevitably look to other things like entertainment. We'll inevitably look to outward signs and symbols and outward things to appeal to us 
rather than worshiping to appeal to a holy God through Christ. I think that modern example of making worship all about us and all about our experience can be placed 2,000 years ago in the experience of the Hebrew church. We've been studying this letter now for for several weeks. We know that this letter to the Hebrews, it was written to to folks who had been Jewish. They were probably Greek Jews who had who, who had a background in the temple, a background in the Old Testament scriptures, but they've come to know Christ. They've come to saving faith. And you think of all that they left behind in coming to Christ. They left behind the temple. And they left behind the sacrifices day after day. And they left behind the rituals. And they left behind the high priesthood. And they left behind the people and their social standing, and they left behind all those things of Old Testament worship. And some of them are starting to say, you know, we miss the temple and we miss the sights and the smells and the sounds of of Old Testament worship, and they're thinking about going back. And the author of this letter, who was a loving pastor exhorting his flock not to wander, but rather to keep their eyes upon Christ. Here's what he's saying to them again and again and again in this book. He's saying to them, you may have lost the temple, but now Jesus is the place where we worship. You may have lost the priesthood, but now you have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for you. And you may have lost those day after day after day sacrifices, but you have the Lord Jesus who is your sacrifice once for all. You see, all of those tangible images of worship from the Old Testament that were so engaging, that were so exciting, they were tools to teach us. They were symbols to show us something greater that was to come. But now they've passed away, and these worshipers are saying, we kind of miss that. And this pastor wants them to understand it's a good thing that those, pa- those things have passed away because they were all picture but had no power. When Christ went to the altar at Calvary to be their sacrifice, even though they can't today see that picture, it is the power that they long for. It's the power that we need for salvation. And so this pastor here is saying to his flock and he's saying to us, everything your soul craves in those outward images, those visible pictures, whether it was the tangible signs of the Old Testament system or the excitement of of the worship that, that so many churches sell today to consumers, he's saying what you're really craving is only found as we worship Jesus Christ according to Scripture. That's what your heart is really craving. We'll see this again and again in Hebrews, but one of the realities here is that all the earthly symbols and all the earthly pictures from the temple to the sacrifices to the priesthood, they are copies and replicas or copies and shadows according to Hebrews 8 of heavenly things, not built with human hands. And as we, the New Testament church, worship in Christ and through Christ, 
what happens is that he lifts us up out of our earthly seats and he lifts us up to be seated with him in the heavenly places. That's what's happening as we worship. And so again and again, this pastor is going to tell his flock, if you will just fix your eyes upon Jesus, you'll find that he exceeds any earthly excitement and earthly experience because when we worship Christ and when we worship through Christ, he transports our souls into heaven. That's what Jesus does when we worship. We see that specifically in verses 12 and 13, and I want you to see three things in those two verses. We see first, Jesus leads us into worship. Second, we'll see that Jesus preaches to us as we worship. And third, we'll see that Jesus satisfies us in worship. So first, we see here that Jesus leads us in worship. You know, corporate worship is going to be one of the really important themes of Hebrews. And so you come to Hebrews 10 and it's going to say, don't cease gathering together. Don't stop gathering together. This is, this is what the church does. When the people of God hear the voice of God, their good shepherd, it calls them and it calls them together. That's what you are as the church. You have heard the voice of Christ and he has called us together as the church. And so corporate worship is going to be a theme throughout this book. And corporate worship is the context of verses 12 and 13. And what God is giving us in verses 12 and 13 is a behind-the-scenes look at what happens when we worship. Look at verse 13. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Now these are words taken from Isaiah chapter 8, but they are being applied to the lips of the Lord Jesus. And in this verse, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his Father. And he's announcing that he is bringing us into the heavenly tabernacle not made with human hands. That's what's happening in corporate worship. Now, you and I don't get to hear that side of the conversation. But it's printed here for us. What we hear is how Christ calls us into worship. And so if, you're, if you listen carefully, when Pastor Walton called us to worship, he didn't say, I'm calling you into worship. He says, God calls us into worship. We're hearing the other side of the conversation. Jesus says to his father, behold, I and the children you have given me. And he says to us, come and worship. It's critical that we understand that Jesus leads us into worship because it's an explanation of why Jesus came in the first place. You remember the conversation in John chapter 4 where Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he starts to, to ask her heart issues, and she brings up, well, where should we be worshiping? Y'all say it needs to be in Jerusalem. We say it can be here. Where should we worship? And she tries to, to start the worship wars. But Jesus tells her something astounding. He says, the Father seeks worshipers. Jesus is giving us a hint as to why he came. He came to bring worshipers to the Father. You see, worship is really the reverse of sin. When sin entered the world, the world full of people that were created to worship and enjoy God, it misdirected our worship. 
And so we, we have hearts made to worship, but because of sin, we worship all the wrong things. We love and we crave all the wrong things. And so what Christ came to do is turn our hearts right side up so we can begin to worship the right things, so that we can see God's worth and we count everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Him. If we think that Christ came solely to save us to, from hell, we're missing a major part of the biblical story, which is that Christ came to make us worshipers, to set us free from the reign of sin so that we can worship His Father. That's why repentance is so important to the Christian faith, because with repentance, we turn from worshiping those wrong things, and we say, I want to spend my life worshiping the right things. And so Jesus, he so loves the worship of his Father. He loves for his Father to be worshiped so much that he gave his own life for that. And so that's why Christ says to the Father here, Behold, I and the children God has given me. And so as we gather in worship, Christ is leading us in resurrection power as the worship leader of his Father because he so delights for his Father to be worshiped. That's why he came for us, to make us worshipers. We see that in the latter part of verse 12. It says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. These are words taken from Psalm 22. You're familiar with Psalm 22 in the beginning Psalm 22, verse 1, it's those, that terrible line that Jesus says from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an awful scene as you work through Psalm 22, but as you get to the later verses of Psalm 22, it turns to a scene of praise and exuberant joy. And so Christ says to us those words in the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. How that only makes sense if it's Jesus in resurrection power leading the praises of heaven and the church here on earth to praise his Father. You know, that's a, a tremendous encouragement in worship that when we bring our praises, we are adding our voice to the voice of Christ. It's particularly an encouragement from those of us whose, whose voices aren't quite as beautiful as other people's voices. I've never asked anyone this, but I've assumed that the reason that my chair is about 15 feet from the front row is so that you were spared hearing my voice in worship because it's not a good voice. But I like singing next to Pastor Walton because his voice is much better than mine and somehow his voice singing next to him makes my voice a little better. When we sing, we are adding our voices to the voice of Jesus Christ, who perfectly praises his Father with every word. And as we realize that, as we realize that this worship is not us singing in our own strength, but us adding our voices to the much greater voice of Christ, we realize that, that it's a pleasing sound, it's a joyful noise to the Father. And so as Jesus gathers us, as he leads us in worship, his perfect pitch comes alongside our joyful noises and it produces a, a beautiful harmony 
of praise to God that reaches the throne. It's important that we realize that the only audience we care about in worship is God the Father. Every once in a while, somebody after worship will say, I didn't like that song. And if I'm having a good day, I'm going to say, thank you, duly noted. But if I'm feeling a little spunky, I'm going to say, well, good, it wasn't for you. It was for God. God is the audience of our worship. He is the consumer of our worship. And when we worship in Christ, when we worship according to the leadership of Christ, God the Father is pleased with that worship. So first, Christ leads us in worship. There's a second thing here that the Lord Jesus also preaches to us. Look at the first part of verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now, if you've studied the scriptures before, you know that name doesn't just mean name. It doesn't just mean that proper noun. It means the entirety of who someone is. And so when Christ says, I will tell of your name, he's saying to my Father, I, to, to the Heavenly Father, I cannot wait to tell my brothers about you and what you've done and who you are. You know, that's what preaching is. Preaching is simply telling the world who God is and what he's done. You think of the Emmaus Road. We studied this a few months ago as we wrapped up Luke. But on the Emmaus Road, there were two disciples. We met. They were confused. They were discouraged. Jesus had been crucified. They were hearing rumors about the resurrection, but they didn't know if it was true. They're walking back to Emmaus, and somebody joins them along the road. It's Jesus, but they don't know it. And Jesus begins to open the scriptures to them. And he preaches to them probably the greatest Old Testament sermon ever preached. He showed them all throughout the scriptures how it all pointed to him. And what's amazing is they said, didn't, weren't our hearts strangely warmed when he was here? And then finally they realize it's him and he disappears. I think part of what that lesson teaches us is that it is not the physical presence of Jesus Christ that we need in preaching. What we need is the Spirit of Christ as it's applied to our hearts, as the Word is applied to our hearts. That's what the Emmaus Road taught us, that even now Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, applies His Word to us. I want to show you that from the Scriptures. Look with me at Ephesians 2 for a moment. Ephesians 2, verse 17, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church. By the way, a church that he planted and a church that as far as we know, Jesus never physically set foot there. And Paul said in verse 17, and he came, speaking of Christ, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Uh, Well, Christ, as far as we know, never set foot physically in Ephesus. It was Paul who carried the gospel there. So how did Christ preach there? Because as the disciples preached the word, it was Christ preaching by his spirit. We see this also in Romans chapter 10. 
This is that great call to missions in Romans 10. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Look at verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul's saying there, as the word is faithfully preached, it is Christ speaking. The apostle Peter said the same thing. Look with me at 1 Peter 4. Starting at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. He's speaking of the life of the church there. He says, when the word is proclaimed, it is God's word. It is Christ who preaches it. I think that's why we've probably, if you're a believer, you've had moments in your life where the preaching of the word just grabs hold of you. And suddenly things that were dim become clear. And oftentimes we'll assume it's the eloquence or the creativity or the power of the pastor that grips our hearts, but it's Christ who grips our hearts in those moments, and He's illumining the truth by His Spirit. Or you might hear a sermon, and and it's exactly what you needed to hear in that moment, and you wonder, has He been following me around this week? And maybe he's, the preacher's encouraging you where you're discouraged. Maybe He's stepping on your toes for an area of sin. But what happened is not the flawed, frail preacher that did anything. It's Christ who who preached His Word straight into your heart. That's why we want you to pay attention to the preaching of the Word because Christ speaks as His Word is read and proclaimed. Nothing else can do what the preached Word does in the life of the church. As Christ preaches... You know, it's actually one of the ways that he separates the sheep from the goats. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How do we hear his voice? It's in his word. As the word is read, as the word is preached, it will bore the goats but it will draw the sheep because they know the voice of their heavenly Father. You know, doesn't that change how we listen to preaching today? I I read something recently that said the maximum time limit for public speaking today is about nine minutes. Nine minutes? We hadn't even gotten through the introduction yet. It's amazing to me that the average American can watch almost two hours of Netflix every day, but when it comes to the preach word, We can't handle it. We can't handle more than a few minutes. Some of us feel like there's a fine line between a long church service and a hostage situation. Going back to this attractional model of church that's only concerned about the consumer in the pew, that doesn't want to offend or bore people, and so it keeps preaching brief and shallow and basically a TED Talk, It's no wonder that people eventually leave the church because they're not getting anything from the church that they couldn't get from a podcast. They're not getting anything from the church they couldn't get from Oprah or Ellen. And what happens is is 
anemic preaching, weak preaching, produces anemic, weak Christians. When the full counsel of God is not proclaimed with conviction and clarity and power, the people starve, and what they will begin to do, and this is the full cycle of the attractional church, what will happen when preaching is put on the back burner for other things of entertainment? People will begin to nibble more and more at the table of this world, and they will lose their appetite for the things of God. And so, of course, preaching becomes boring. But without solid biblical preaching, the church will fail and fade away. It's because Christ preaches to us in his word. So he leads us, he preaches to us. There's a third thing Christ does as we worship. When we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, when we can look past the pomp and pageantry and pyrotechnics of the 21st century church and keep our eyes solely fixed upon him, what we find is that Christ satisfies our souls. Two days ago was the 379th anniversary of the British Parliament calling together the Westminster Assembly to gather and write the doctrinal statement of the Church of England. Well, it it only stayed the doctrinal statement of the Church of England for a very short time. It did become the doctrinal statement of the Church of Scotland, and it's our doctrinal statement today. But they would meet over the span of a few years, they would meet 1,100 times and produced, I think, some of the greatest theological statements in history. But I think the best thing that the, shorter, that the Westminster Assembly produced was the first question of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the highest goal for which man was created? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, I think we know that first part. We are created to glorify him, but do we remember that, that we're also created to enjoy him? For, for the presence of Christ to so captivate our souls that he becomes our chief delight. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making again and again. You don't need all that other stuff like the temple and the sacrifices and the rituals because what your soul craves can only be found in Jesus. That's the goal of worship. Not entertainment, not mere communication, but communion with Christ. As he leads us and as he preaches to us, he becomes the one that satisfies our souls. It's an exciting thought, isn't it? That Jesus Christ is so capable and committed to being, uh, to giving us greater satisfaction than anything this world can provide. It's also a bit terrifying. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah goes into the throne room of God and he had a vision. He beheld the throne room and it terrified him. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I stand among a people of unclean lips. He sees the holiness of God. And what he does is he realizes, I don't belong here. And he's suddenly ashamed of his sin. And he's wondering, how can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? 
you know that sort of shame? Do, do you know that sense of shame, what it is to be ashamed of our sin? You and I have experienced that. Maybe we're ashamed of a moral failure that we committed last night, last year, or early in life. Maybe we're ashamed of the way we spoke to our, our spouse this morning. Maybe we're ashamed of somebody else. They committed a moral failure or a social faux pas, and we want to distance ourselves from them. Shame creates distance. And so we go to worship, but all we can think about is our sin. And as you worship, as you sing, Satan brings failure after failure into your minds. There's an incredible word of encouragement here in verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you realize that? You who belong to Christ, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. He's not ashamed to call you into worship and to gather alongside you and worship his heavenly Father. He is not ashamed of your sin because he's borne that sin. He's not ashamed of your weakness. He's not ashamed even of our, our, our poor voices and our stammering tongues. If you have entrusted yourself to the grace of Jesus Christ, if you're one of these brothers and one of these sisters, his by faith, he doesn't look at you and run away. He looks at you and draws near to you. And he takes your shame away and he says to you, my dear brothers, my dear sisters, take your eyes off yourself and fix them upon the Lord Jesus. That's going to be the message every week in Hebrews. Take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off this world. Take your eyes off what you've left behind and fix them on the Lord Jesus because he alone, he alone can satisfy your soul. In the final accounting, what you've given up for Christ, what you've done for Christ, it's of little importance. What matters is what you gain in Him. And so as we gather in worship, our chief duty is to fix the eyes of our heart on Him, who He is and what He's done and, as, and how He leads us into worship of His Father. Scripture gives us a beautiful picture of how Christ is able to do that. Do you remember the Apostle John? The Apostle John was the last living apostle as far as we know. Others had died of persecution or died in the work of missions. Towards the end of John's life, the pagan emperor Domitian had John arrested and for reasons that God alone knows, Domitian decided not to kill John, but he sent John into exile on the Isle of Patmos. He cut him off from Christian fellowship. He took away everything that was normal for him in worship. And there on Patmos, with no church building, no instruments, no congregation, John had perhaps the greatest earthly experience of worship ever known. He, he says to us, John uh, excuse me, Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
What does he mean? I was fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. Even if I didn't have my brothers and sisters here, it was Jesus who led me into worship, and it was Jesus who who sang alongside me, and it was Jesus who preached his word into my soul. And then you come to Revelation 4 and 5, and you step into that wonderful picture of heaven's worship that John was allowed to see, the greatest worship experience in human history. There were no pews, no organ, no congregation, at least no earthly congregation. But John got a glimpse into the worship of heaven. That's what Christ does when we worship, when we take our eyes off this world and the the symbols and the signs and the entertainment of this world and we lift the eyes of our hearts to Christ in worship. It brings us into the richest possible fellowship with Him. He holds nothing back from us. And as we do, As we draw near to him, all those lesser concerns and all those earthly things pass away and we begin to see and say that Jesus Christ himself and Jesus Christ alone is enough. How do we apply this text? First, a word about expectation. As we gather in worship, we need to have heavenly expectations. You know, if all we think is going to happen in worship is that you're going to sing a few songs, pray a few prayers, and hear a sermon, we're going to be bored and we're going to count the minutes till it's over. But if we realize that in worship, Christ stands before us and he leads us and we're joining our voices to his and he is even preaching his word into our hearts, then we're going to be able to say with Jacob as he stood in the house of God, how awesome is this place? That should be our expectation as we worship, that we are going to meet with Christ. Parents, that's particularly an exhortation towards us as we raise little ones. If our children see us bored and disengaged in worship, they're going to probably be bored and disengaged in worship. And many will stop going one day. Parents, let your children see you long for the worship of God as the deer longs for water. Show your children that worship isn't just something we do. It is the sustenance of our soul and the joy of our lives. Second, everything we add to worship that goes beyond scripture, ultimately takes away from worship. That's what we see here in Hebrews. You know, you can go back to the sacrifices. You can go back to the temple. You can go back to that old priestly system, and your worship will be impoverished because of it. Scripture tells us everything we need to know about worship. We don't need to constantly try things. We don't need to get creative about worship. We need to be faithful in worship. New Testament worship is remarkably simple because the goal of all of it is to fix the eyes of our hearts upon Jesus Christ. Finally, the Lord's Supper is our guarantee that Jesus meets with us in worship. What we've said of how Christ stands with us in worship may sound too good to be true. 
that, that Christ should take such a great interest in the worship of a small church in a small corner of a small state in the year 2022. And yet it's true. And the Lord's Supper is, is Christ's promise of His presence with us. He, he's not present physically. The bread doesn't become His body. The cup doesn't become His blood. But it's a pledge of spiritual presence that He's with us. And as we partake of this meal, He's saying, I'm with you. I'm one with you. I unite myself with you and you're, you're united with me. The Supper as he gives himself to us, is the promise that we can grab hold of that he holds nothing back, that he is with us fully in worship. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we do praise you for this word. We thank you for the scriptures that tell us everything we need for life and godliness. Father, we confess that in so many ways we live as paupers. When you have given us the greatest riches in the world, you have given us yourself. Even as we taught the children this week at Vacation Bible School, the, the expedition, the search, the hunt for the world's greatest treasure, and, and we told them that that treasure is Christ. Lord, I pray that you really are our treasure, that you really are sufficient. And that we wouldn't be like the Israelites as they left Egypt and then started to crave the onions and the garlic that they had left behind. I pray that we wouldn't be like that, that we wouldn't crave earthly things, but that we would know that every desire, every yearning in our soul can only ultimately be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Oh, and he is so kind and he gives of himself abundantly. He gives of himself abundantly as we worship and he gives of himself abundantly day after day as we seek to set our eyes upon him. And so, Father, as we prepare to take the supper, would you lift our eyes to Christ? Would we see him in his beauty? Would we behold him in his majesty? Would we cling ever more tightly to what the bread symbolizes, which is his body? to what the cup symbolizes, which is his blood poured out for us, would it take on a, a deeper and richer meaning now than ever before? Oh, help us, we pray, our great high priest, our worship leader, our Savior, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray.